and scholars. Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or check out slutsandscholars.com. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and we are without my co-host today, Simone, as I am on location up at my alma mater at Stanford. But we are joined by Julie Lithcott-Hames, who was my freshman dean at Stanford and is now a best-selling author who writes nonfiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry with the aim of helping humans thrive. She holds a BA in American Studies from Stanford University, a JD from Harvard Law School, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She's a member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto and lives in Silicon Valley with her partner of close to 30 years and their two teenagers and mother. Welcome. Nicoletta, it's so great to see you. And I know you're laughing at me with this microphone in my face. Yeah, the microphone's adorable. And also, when you gave the name of the podcast, I was like, oh yeah, oh my gosh, that's right, that's this podcast. uh, I've been on a lot of podcasts, but never one with such a tantalizing title and tag. Well, yeah, what do you think when I told you the name, or when you heard the name of the podcast? Yeah, I just thought, I wonder why she wants to talk to me. Because you're a scholar. Right, exactly. And maybe there's some, you know, other sluttery in there that we don't know about or do know about. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So... I know that your one of your first books has already been out for a while. I had the privilege of seeing you talk about it at an event in L.A. a couple years ago, right. um, How to Raise an Adult, but it's obviously still popular, and some of our listeners, maybe a lot of them, haven't heard of it yet. Um, so I would love to know, in it you talk about people falling into this overparenting trap. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the overparenting trap? Um, hmm. So these days, and I'm a parent, let me say, you've mentioned in the intro, I've got teenagers, so... Yeah. I'm a parent and a former dean, and in both of those roles, I became concerned that um, parents are doing too much of the living of life for their kids. In order to get kids to the right college, quote-unquote, air quotes, right college, or to the right future, parents lately have adopted this style in certain communities, communities that tend to be at least middle class, if not upper middle class and beyond, where parents have a little time and money on their hands. I'm sure you saw so much of this at Stanford. I saw the results of this at Stanford, and it was also continuing there. And what I was seeing at Stanford, deans and administrators were seeing around the country. It wasn't a Stanford problem. It was what was happening in America. Parents were overprotective um, throughout childhood. Can't let you out of my sight. You know, got to always be within ear range. Need to know where you are at all times. You know, that sort of fear-based parenting. Um, Where do you think the fear comes from? Just like wanting their kids to have a better life or not wanting them to experience hurt? Well, when it comes to the the sort of bubble wrapping a childhood, Mm -hmm. I think parents have an overblown sense of the dangers that are out there. Parents began to think a stranger was lurking in every corner, which isn't true. Uh, We're safer as Americans, as an American society, for all humans of all ages, today and yesterday in the last decade, much safer than we were when I was growing up in the 70s. But the 24-7, 365 news cycle and and availability of all of that on our phones and our pockets alerts us to dangers wherever they're happening. And we become, we're sort of on heightened alert for the possibility, even though the likelihood is so, so minuscule that our kid is going to get abducted. Mm-hmm. So the overparenting thing is is part overprotective, part fiercely directive, as in you will do what I say, you will be a doctor, you will go into STEM, you will be an econ major, whatever it is, one of those, you know, five or six things parents think are the, the right type of career. And the third type of overparenting is being a concierge to your kid and basically attending their every move, handling things for them, acting like they're a rock star and you're their assistant, you know, or they're a CEO and you're their executive assistant. It's kind of tracking deadlines, bringing forgotten stuff, reminding them of what's next, and maybe handling some of the tough encounters for them. And all of this, whether it's overprotection, this fierce direction or tiger type of parenting, or the concierging, it robs a kid of the opportunity to develop agency, this sense of I know. And, and a sense of resilience. And resilience, right? Because th- something's gone wrong and then they learn from it and bounce back, right? So there are all kinds of ways in which overparenting, even though it's lovingly done usually and done based on some fear, it's also done based on parental ego. Like I need to perfect these outcomes for my kid. 
whatever the motivations are, and even though sometimes parents can achieve things for their kids in the short term when they do all of this, mm-hmm. in the long run, they're they're harming their kids' uh, mental health because kids aren't forming a sense of self, and that's one of the things that contributes to higher rates of anxiety and depression, which are hugely on the rise. I totally agree. I think my parents were a bit of the concierge parents. Yeah. I think it came from a place of them um, maybe not having a lot growing up. Yeah. Um, my dad grew up in like a small farm town in Austria. Yeah. Um, and so I was the first to go to college, to graduate from college. And so I think there was this level of protection, like we want a better life for you. Yeah. But that turned into like, no is never an option. Yeah. Meaning like, if you want to go to two parties, we'll figure out how to go to both. If you want to do this, we'll figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. And so I think it doesn't allow for that sense of hunger that people need to get through difficult times in their life. That's so wise. Just listening to you, I'm just struck by oh, you. how you just nailed that. Um, well, I've seen it with clients too because that anxiety comes from like almost not knowing how to tolerate negative experiences, mm-hmm. it seems like. Mm. Like it's hard to manufacture that hunger and resiliency when yeah. you have been taught that someone else will take care of it. Right. Yeah. Boy, that's I'm, I'm having some flashbacks to my own parenting now with my kids. Like, oh, oh, that's the reason. Yeah, wow. But it like makes, I feel like it's done with love because it's like maybe you didn't, we didn't have these things growing up. Right. And so we want you we to, want to offer you right a, a better stuff. life. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you feel like that w- was similar to your experience growing up or different? Um, I'm I'm 50, so it was a different time. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the latchkey era. I'm Gen X. Mm-hmm. You know, our mothers went back into the workforce. Our dads weren't at home yeah. either. We we had our keys to let us in after school. No one was watching. Mm-hmm. We did our homework. We played. We made a snack. <laughs> we might have started dinner. Yeah. You know, all without parents being there. And so, so that's the first memory that comes up when you ask me about my childhood or how I was raised. I had a lot of no's. I had... My parents were strict, mm-hmm. and there were things I was not allowed to do. And I think in some ways that was, you know, I did a lot of acting out to show them just how much, you know, they thought they could stop me, and I was trying to show them that they couldn't. Um, so that was, I did have a set of boundaries, but I think they were in some ways too rigid, particularly around academics. My mother tried to ground me when I started to come home with some bees, mm-hmm. and she was going to make me quit the pom-pom team and ground me. Is that like so cheerleading? Like, yeah, it was like the dance team, you know. And, uh, well, do you have pictures? Yeah, no, no, no <laughs> pictures. Um, actually, you know what? I loved doing that. I loved getting to wear my school uniform and, you know, every Friday because of games, and I just loved it. Um, but she was going to ground me. And, and tell me I couldn't be on pom pom, and my neighbor, who was from New Hampshire, my mother's British, so she had no idea what pom pom even was or what American high school was mm-hmm. like. My neighbor said, "Oh, Jeannie, you can't make her quit the pom pom team. It's a big deal." And I'm really grateful to that neighbor, you know, because I was about ready to show my mom just how many bees I could get, you know, yeah, to just go in the opposite direction, shoot myself in the foot, just yeah. to prove my mom wrong. Right. Yeah. I remember doing stuff like that yeah, with right. my parents. Um, how do you think it's different when we talk about the intersection of race? Because in your second book, obviously, you talk about being a, a black woman growing up in the States and or being biracial. Um, and I'm wondering how you think that affects some of this overparenting stuff that we talk about. Like, do you see differences across races or do you see similarities? I mostly notice the overparenting endemic in communities of privilege, as I Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, parents who have some time and money on their hands. Mm -hmm. That said, I also saw it fiercely in um, immigrant families trying to ensure that their kids got to the right seat at the table in America. Like wanting them to have a a better life? Yeah, wanting them to have access to what the American professional class would offer or guarantee. Um, so that is where, you know, I, I might have seen Nigerian-American kids really under a lot of pressure to just do exceedingly well to meet their parents' expectations, the kid being the first-generation American. Um, Chinese-American kids, kids from India, I mean, all all kinds of folks um, with an immigrant mentality of striving, 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 and pushing the kids for, uh, further and further forward. Um 
you know, that said, I've also seen it among middle class, upper middle class black folks um, who are just really hell bent on getting kids to the right institution because as black people, we know that we are judged as being less worthy, less capable, less deserving, um, less smart, all of that. And we know that we've got to push our kids to be even better so that they're seen as good enough. And um, How do you explain that to your children? Like uh, that they're operating on a, like a lower peg than people with privilege. Yeah. Well, so the, you know, this segues now to safety out in the streets and police violence and whatnot, right? So yeah. I've got a son I've had to have the talk with a couple of times, a number of times, you know, to try to help him understand that there are some people out there in the world who are going to decide that because of your brown skin and your Afro, that you're a problem. If something... Just by walking just down by the street. Down the, or being in a group of kids, if something happens, in some people's eyes, you're the wrongdoer. You know, they'll ask the white kid what happened and presume you're the wrongdoer, right? And not, I'm not saying everyone feels this way, but obviously we know that in many, many places and in, in, in any, any part of America, this can happen. Yeah. And so we as black parents have an obligation to teach our kids the truth of that mm-hmm. while simultaneously, this is the tricky part, it's easy to talk about that. It's, it's just factual news stuff. This is the reality of being black in America. Yeah. Be aware so conduct yourself, you know, be, be smart out there. Here's how to stay safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the task, the challenge is how do you simultaneously build a sense of self-love in a yes. child who society might regard as problematic? And I think that's the, the tricky thing is to teach both things simultaneously. How did you learn to achieve that for yourself, that sense of self-love that you could achieve all the things that you have achieved? You know what, Nicoletta, I am 50, as I've said, I don't think I loved myself unconditionally until about age 40. In in fact, my second book really deals with this. My memoir on race, Real American, talks about... Which, if you haven't read, is amazing. Thank you. It's this... It's delivered in nine parts, and they go like this. It begins like this, an American childhood, becoming the other desperate to belong, self-loathing, emerging, declaring, Black Lives Matter, onward. And this pit of self-loathing was a period of my life that lasted about 20 years. It's a long time to not feel good with yourself. Right. And it was also those same years when I was outwardly performing like mad and making it. So it was from kind of toward the end of high school, mm-hmm. say from about 17 to 40, Um when I was called the N-word on my birthday in high school, my all-white high school. And I think from that moment on, I was trying to be the black person that would never experience that again. So I was... Does that mean performing like a quote-unquote white person? Or respectability politics. It means playing the part the white people won't loathe or discard or disregard or call the N-word again. I have a friend who's half black, and she talks about... uh, She went to Stanford and talks about when she... Um, it goes to work that she dresses really preppy yeah. because she says she feels like she has to yeah. to be taken seriously. Yeah. So I get that. And I, you know, for me, it was I straightened my hair all my life mm-hmm. uh, until I was about 34. I was just press, 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 pressing it so that I'd have smooth hair as opposed to what white folks might regard as wild hair or unclean hair or inappropriate hair. And um, I've really delighted in my 40s and just letting my hair do what it does. And, but that's an example of trying to tamp myself down in order to fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to big brand name schools. I, I was a corporate lawyer. I became a university administrator at a prestigious place. And I was succeeding and feeling good about that. But I can look back on that and say, I know that much of that was an effort to just um, prove, 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 prove constantly that I was not to be discarded or disregarded. I was not to be dismissed. And, um, how do you think you learned that? Cause I feel like it could just as easily have been like, Oh, I, I don't belong. I'm bad. And then to be like, I can't accomplish anything, but to decide like, I'm going to step into this role and, and push. 
Like, I wonder how you got there. You know, I, th- I don't know. Um, I think what happened was I knew what I was praised for and I kept going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so kept trying to um, show up with the skills, the exceeding amount of skills needed in order to do X, Y, or Z, and then receive the approval and the applause and the pats on the back and the atta girls and what have you. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want that? Exactly, we all want it. Um, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with wanting it. What's troublesome is when we need it in order to feel whole. And that's what's transformed for me with a lot of work with a coach, um, getting to the root of, you know, what's triggering me when, when I show up in a meeting, when I show up in a conversation and I'm so angry about something, or I'm so passionately, fervently trying to, you know, make something happen. What is triggering me to go to that nth degree of emotion, which by the way, is such a stereotype of black women. And so when I the got angry, this, like the angry, angry black, black woman, woman. My, so my passion was always too much. My emotion was too high. My, my feelings were too much for people. And I was intrigued. But by, if it were a white man right, no, exactly. saying it, right? right. It'd they be like, be oh, wow, what a, what a passionate, passionate guy, right? Exactly. I'd be president of the United States right now. Um, <laughs> um, Dean Julie 2020. Right, right. <laughs> uh, no. Um, I came to appreciate that the triggers were this feeling of I have to prove myself that, that I'm doubted on the basis of race, which was my trigger, and I need to prove that I'm capable and that, you know, that I can be successful at this or that my idea is correct or, or whatever. Um, so with a lot of work, I managed to undo it and or understand it, love myself through it. And then as the emotions come up now, I can say like, okay, you're all right. You're all right. This is what's happening. You know, you don't have to react unless you want to. Do you want to react? Do you want to respond? Do you want to say something? Or do you want to keep silent? Do you want to mull this over some more? I developed a mindfulness practice that has really changed my life. And um, which is why I say, if you're doing things for the purpose of pleasing others, that's problematic. Um, we ought to do things that we're good at and that we love and that bring us joy, make us feel useful, make us feel like we're having the kind of contribution we want to have in the world. Not because someone else is going to applaud us for it, but because it feels like the right thing intrinsically within us to do. I'm wondering, like in your experience there, like you're, you're talking about some of these things and at Stanford, the kids that go there are influenced so much by this. So I just find it so interesting that you have this mindfulness structure and all of these like things that you're talking about that have helped you. Um, and we didn't have a lot of that mm. at Stanford. Mm. And so I'm wondering, did you get inspired by being there and seeing that? Or do you feel like it? you had that before, like working there? You know, I think being at a college campus... Um, for anyone who works on a college campus, I think uniformly we feel it's so energetic and so vibrant. There's so much discovery, new ideas, new experiences. There's an energy mm-hmm. um, that is very generative. And I think being around other people, whether they were undergraduates or graduate students, who were in the process of figuring out who am I, what do I want, what's working for me, what's not, what am I struggling with, how am I going to handle it, uh, helped put me in a place. It's like my work environment was so, um, as I've said, generative. It was a place where people were generating themselves. And I think it allowed me, if I'd been in a corporate environment, it would have been harder for me to do that introspective work. Because in corporate America, at least when I was in corporate America, they didn't want you to, you, you were not a human, you were there to do work. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a university, it's inherently comprised of humans. And so the energy around me was very supportive of um, uh, doing introspective work and figuring out, uh, figuring your stuff out. How did you, how did you learn this stuff? Like, do you feel, I know in your memoir, you talked about maybe things that your parents didn't teach you that you wish they had. How did you learn these things on, on your own and get, and find that support? Do you mean things around um, around around race stuff, around um, self love, around yeah. mindfulness? So okay, you, see, you know you said it took until you were forty, 40 something. Right. So I'm thinking of my coach, Mary Ellen Myers, who is a white woman, a Buddhist, uh, and a keto master, um, and she was brought in to work with our team. And you know there were five of us, I think, on the team reporting to the vice provost, and I thought, <laughs> I joke, I say this in my book. 
I think at the outset, I thought I was doing great. My job was just to help her understand what was wrong with everyone else, you know? And that's how we were going to improve our team dynamic, if she could help the other people improve. I really was so blind to my own um, opportunities to learn. But after working with her for a while, and she was able, I, I, she gained my trust and whatnot, and I was able to kind of listen to the feedback she had from me. And she really taught me this practice of mindfulness, taught me. I remember when she first told me about it, I thought, oh my gosh, this sounds so woo-woo, like give me a break, <laughs> like what? Triggers? I'm not that, you know. And uh, But I started, I believed her and I trusted her and I admired her. And so I started to, to give it a, a shot. And then when you develop a mindfulness practice, you start to become, you know, it is the process of noticing the self and what your body is telling you, what your thoughts are telling you, what your fears, you know, you just, you develop this awareness of your internal self. So being aware of your own um, intentions for doing things and seeing if they were for others or for yourself. Yeah. And understanding what just happened to make me have this bodily response where my heart rate is up or my mouth is dry or whatever it might be. And, um... And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And so yeah, it's, a, it's, a it's, it's a practice, right? So so I really credit Mary Ellen Myers. Uh, she's this amazing woman. I think, you know, there's a, some people say there's like five people you'll see as you're dying or something. Mary Ellen's definitely one of my five. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, going back to something you said before um, about your about your kids yeah. and raising them in this political climate yeah. today. Yeah. Um, on one hand, you were saying that, you know, you have to teach your black kids, like, here's what's happening in the world, and you might have to try harder than other people. So how do you balance that with not over-parenting? Yeah. That I seems like a, it seems like a tough know. balance. No, it is a tough balance. Absolutely. Like, um, hey, you're going to have to work harder, but I don't want to put pressure on you. Right. So I think it's about effort versus outcomes. I think what all parents ought to be teaching is your effort is what you have control of. You must make an effort every time try hard, work hard, mm-hmm. you know, develop a strong work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, don't sit around, don't wait around, don't wait to be served, don't wait for something to happen to you, make it happen. Mm-hmm. An over, a person who's over-parenting it tends to be steering a kid toward specific outcomes, mm-hmm. depriving them of doing, making the effort themselves because they're over-helping, they're partly doing their homework or they're arguing with the teacher or they're keeping track of everything for them. So they're kind of undermining the kid, developing that strong work ethic themselves, and they're pointing them specifically at a certain career or college. So, so you're just saying, like, work hard at something yeah. and learn how to struggle with that and figure it out yeah. versus, like, you will be a doctor and right. this is the exactly. course of action. Exactly. That's right. I mean, you were such a wonderful dean and that you really got to Thank know you. the students. Thank you. Um, that's obviously why we can be sitting here right. having this that's conversation right. today. So I'm yeah. super grateful for that. What were some of the results that you saw of some of these overparenting things? I know you mentioned anxiety, depression, well, anything else. Yeah, it's hard. I, I didn't see, so let me be really clear. I know from reading other people's research that overparenting leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression. Psychologists have done mm. studies correlating those. Yeah. Okay? I couldn't have I feel like said, I can personally vouch yeah, for that okay. experience. I couldn't have said, you know, with a student presenting in my office, like you're sitting here with me today, I couldn't have, I'm not a psychologist, so I couldn't have said, oh, this person has anxiety or, oh, this person has depression and, oh, it must be a result of their parenting. Right. So I couldn't make those connections. Um, other people made those connections. What I saw was... Um, parents increasingly on our campus, that is a growing number of parents every year, seem to think it was natural, normal, and good to play a role in the day-to-day life of their college student, doing things that no parent would have in their right mind done in the 80s when I was in college. Just simple things like registering their student for class or um, calling up a professor or emailing a professor with a concern about a grade. Oh, wow. Or um, getting wanting to get involved in roommate disputes. Mm. Um, do you see what I'm saying? The stuff of life that is normal, mundane, routine, that frankly we'd expected a college student to be able to handle for themselves and get better and better at handling the more they experience these things, right? The stuff of life. Parents were wanting to handle that for their students. And I thought, oh my goodness, two, two, two things concern me. Why are my students tolerating this? Because in my generation, and of course this is the mark Because it's of probably helpful age, in some, well, right? It is helpful. It is helpful. And yet, 
it, when I was 18 or 20 or 22, and anyone over 40 who's listening to this is nodding their heads, <laughs> we would have been mortified that our parents were wanting to be in our business and handle right. stuff for us. It's infantilizing. Yes. That's how we would have felt. That's how we did feel. Like, get away. I've got this, you know? What do you think is different now in well, our culture? This is the thing. I mean, the overparenting is so lovingly applied. It's like, I'm there for you. Mm. My parents, in my generation, parents didn't come to every game we were in. They might have come to the championship game. Not every game. And zero practices. Okay? That's one And now that would be considered as like an absent parent, right? (laughs) Now you're supposed to go to every practice, show up on the sidelines, right? Cheer like hell, right? But then I see really unhappy parents in my therapy office. Parents who like don't have a balance with their life. life. No, no, no. Exactly. So parenting, by the way, the term itself is an example, is, is sort of this encapsulation of the problem we used to call it child rearing the child is at the center of it now it's parenting it's all about us i'm parenting Mm -hmm. and parenting has become do absolutely everything you can for your child always be with them Uh, attend their every move watch them play watch them do homework watch them in stores watch them on playgrounds Watch them in mall, constantly hovering, observing. You're doing such fear. a good job breathing. Right? Yeah, yes, great job, buddy. Here's a certificate for breathing today. Awesome. Um, and um, it means there's no room whatsoever for a healthy, vibrant, rich, rewarding adult life. And when I give talks on this book, as I'm still doing constantly, going around the country giving talks, sometimes I just say, at the end, like, folks, we got to get a life. Get a life. And maybe your kid can have one, too. Yeah. You know? And maybe we'll be better at, better at role modeling what a healthy, exciting adult life looks like. And maybe they'll want to have As opposed to adult. taking the life of your child, almost. Yeah. So we're taking the life of our children and simultaneously not modeling how amazing it is to be an adult, which is why my next book totally. is on how to be an adult. Oh my God, oh my I can't God. wait to read that because I come back to college and I miss college like daily because I feel like, oh, it was the last fr- the last frontier, the last childhood thing because I look at maybe the adults in my life and where they're at and I'm like, that is so miserable. Like that seems so horrible. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it doesn't seem fun. It doesn't seem... Right. I mean, not that life is always going to be no, fun, but no, it just right? doesn't seem there's, enjoyable. There's, there's tedium. There's monotony. There's constant worrying. So parents are so anxious about shuttling their kids around and getting them to the right places. And you can't leave a kid at home alone anymore. You can't leave yeah. them in your car anymore. You can't. So every kid gets dragged to everything because no one's allowed to be unattended. Yeah. And, or you have to take them to everything, right? which is like a full-time job. Right. And But the little ones, you're taking the older one to the thing. The little ones just have to come along for the ride mm-hmm. um, because we've become so judgmental about uh, so many well, about women's behavior, actually. This is an interesting pivot, I think. Um, you know, people get arrested for letting their kid be alone in a park at age nine. People get arrested for leaving their kid in a car for 10 minutes. As neglect. As neglect. And um, I think this is a societal slam on working moms. Um, it's uh, it's a judgment that you should really be with your children at all times. And if you're not... You know, you're neglecting them. And there are some places, Utah, for instance, just passed a free-range kids law that says this is ridiculous. Kids can be home alone after a certain age. They can walk down streets alone. You know, this is, we don't have to have them constantly attended. There's research from this um, uh, researcher, generational researcher named Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E. She did, wrote this wonderful book called iGen about the generation after millennials, Gen Z, some call them. She calls them iGen. And she, her research shows that they are less, so these are people currently 18 and under, they're less likely to be outside of the house without a parent. When I say less likely, I mean compared to millennials at the same age, Gen X at the same age, and boomers at the same age. They're less likely to be out of the house without a parent, and they're less likely to be in the house without a parent. They are constantly with a parent. And I think we all ought to be interested in, okay, so they're safer, mm-hmm, they're drinking later, great. They're having sex later, okay. They're driving later, all right. But they're they're held, they're protected, coddled. they're coddled. Um, childhood has been extended. When will they hunger? When will they be capable of being the adults we'll need them to be, who will run our institutions and our families and our government and you know be citizens? Yeah. When are they going to 
actually become their own human? For me, I think it creates, it, it manifests in a fear of losing my parents. I mean, of course, no one, if they love their parents, like yeah. no one wants to lose their parents, yeah. but it's a fear of like, how will I exist yeah. without them? It's like a code, like our first yeah. codependent relationship. It is. It has become that. I mean, overparenting is a codependency. How do we teach parents that it's like with the fear that they may have? And there are some real fears, like especially if you have a, a black child or a biracial child or a gay child or a trans child. Um, how do we not take them everywhere for fear of them being hurt? Like how do we, how do parents deal with that fear and like let them go out and, and just hope that they're okay? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more than hope, and it's um, a whole lot less than taking them everywhere with you. Um, it, teaching them resources. Well, it's going back to what you just said a few moments ago, which was to recognize we'll be dead one day. Mm-hmm. I know I will be dead one day, and God willing, I'll be dead before my children are dead, right? That's what we all want. The parents should predecease the child. When when the opposite happens, it's this horrific tragedy. Yeah. But in the natural course of things, I will predecease my children, and I need to have 100% confidence that when I am gone, they'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And unless I'm so filthy rich that I'm going to leave them all the money, including three humans who will watch them around the clock, which, you know, sadly, I do not have that kind of resource, right? But you unless, imagine some people might people do that. Do yeah. that. That's more power to you. You can infantilize your kid forever and know that you can pay someone to look after them the rest of their life. However, for everybody else... We need to know that our kids can fend for themselves. That's actually what we should take pleasure and joy in, is knowing my kid's got skills. My kid can make his or her or their way through the world. My kid knows how to, you know, talk to a landlord, sign a lease, deal with their health insurance, rent a car, all of these tasks. You know, these routine mundane tasks of life are things our kids need to be able to handle for themselves. And we think it's loving to handle it for them, but it's, in fact undercutting their chances to really thrive out there. So it's having a humility. I will not be here forever. Therefore, I must teach them more and more every year and delight in them becoming more and more capable and confident instead of feeling, oh, they don't need, they don't me, need anymore. me anymore. I have no purpose anymore. Well, get over that. Get Find therapy. a new purpose. <laughs> get a life. That's where the get a life thing comes. Like, go get some therapy because your child is not your project or your pet. And when you treat them that way, it really harms their self. It's a lot of pressure. It's pressure and it's, yeah, it's just terrible. Well, I'm not a parent, but I do obviously see people in a a therapy setting. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to watch someone who is um, suffering or struggling and feel like there's nothing you can do about it. So you have to learn to like tolerate and sit with that. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for parents allowing their kids to suffer. I don't mean unnecessary suffering but you know instead of helping them when they're struggling letting them have that struggle experience like how do we tolerate that inner yeah difficulty of watching our children go through difficult times i've read a lot of other people's work on the subject and what it all boils down to is uh like Brene brown comes to mind you know our great guru on resilience and Shame. shame and vulnerability you know Brene Brown would say, I can't take your discomfort away or I can't take your pain away, but I can sit here with you as you experience it. And so it's to be alongside our children. To bear witness. Yeah. To know, let them know that they're not alone. To empathize, let them know that you've struggled too and that you understand, you know, that, that you too have struggled and maybe you haven't done or experienced what they are going through, but to show up with empathy and compassion also shows the kid, and I survived it. You'll be okay. I, I was okay. I, you know, you will too. So it's that differentiation. We are not living the same right now for listeners. I'm like putting my hands on top of each other, like making a fist with both hands. We are not supposed to lead our lives where we're so intertwined with our children that you can't tell what is theirs and what is ours. We're supposed to be separate human beings, and now I'm separating my hands into two fists. I draw it as like a Venn diagram. So if, you're, if your circles are totally overlapped, we would call that enmeshed. Yeah. If they're like totally distant, it's like too distant, but okay. having a fair okay. amount of... of a overlap. little bit of overlap okay. or side by side. Yeah. I think of it as side by side, but I think the principle is the same, which is, you know, you're your own separate being. This is your algebra test, not mine. Mm-hmm. You know, this is your breakup, not mine. doesn't mean I don't care about those things, but in other, when parents think, oh, we have to do better on our algebra, that's a problem. Versus 
uh, I'm sorry you're struggling. Let me know how I can help. I have some ideas, but um, it's up to you. Like giving, letting the child know this is this is theirs. They own it. You're there for them if they need you. Sometimes you physically have to walk out of the room. You know, after you've said your supportive, compassionate thing, you have to leave because otherwise it's hard to watch your kid just flailing. On the other hand, the kid needs the distance in order to kind of recover and start to handle things on their own. And they'll come find you if they need more of you. I'm not saying leave the house. I'm not saying abandon your child, but I'm saying walk into the kitchen. If your child is dealing with an issue, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with a bad breakup or they're dealing with a, you know, they're frustrated with their schoolwork to say, you know, I love you. I, I, I see that you're really struggling. Uh, if you need me, I'm in the kitchen. And that helps to signal to the kid, this isn't, I know this isn't my problem. It's yours. You can handle it, but I'm here so like for you. physically making a little bit of a barrier yeah. to yeah. separate. Yeah. I think it's, it's also a service to teach kids that it's okay to feel your feelings, Absolutely. especially difficult feelings, mm-hmm. as opposed to a parent or a caregiver approaching it with like a fix it mentality. Yes. I see so many people who automatically go to like, how can I fix this? Right. As opposed to like, here's a difficult feeling. I'm going to learn how to sit with it yeah. and tolerate it. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's the fix it mentality and there's a don't feel it mentality, right? Get over it. Right. Man up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> tell me, tell me your reaction. No, 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 no. Would no, you say that mother, was something that mother, was said to you? Oh yeah, my mom was born in England in a really uh, in a poor family that became a working class family, and she was just told to grin and bear it. Mm-hmm. She was told, you know, they swept everything under the rug. Very okay. stereotypical British in that sense. And um, I was one of my favorite, or not favorite, but one of my most memorable phrases of my mother in my childhood was we were in Wisconsin where it was bitter cold and she would say to me it's only cold if you think it's cold and <laughs> okay and I grew up believing that and that basically means like it's in your head it's you in your head the, you yeah. can control how the weather affects exactly. you and now I'm able to say no it was fucking cold <laughs> you know and it wasn't okay to just right yeah, it's tell that to my, all the homeless people who died in New York last year from, yeah. like, the wind chill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can believe that it's warm. Right, right. And yet, you have the example of Elie Wiesel, who, mm-hmm. you know, in a, a Holocaust camp, right, concentration camp, managed to stay incredibly yeah, positive. positive. So there is a lot of strength of the mind, but there's limits. Yeah, I mean, because you also want a little compassion, Right, like, oh yes, it's cold out here, isn't it? Let's see what we can do to just try to, you know, Survive. to you know, to think warm thoughts. Right, there are different ways to convey the message without undermining a kid's actual experience. But that's like a mindfulness approach, right? Is to be like, I'm noticing that I'm cold. Yeah. Maybe I can't change it. Yeah. But in noticing it, can you? Yeah. Think of something else, or look right. past it, right. or sit with it. Yeah. Just allow it to be true, and then move on. Yeah. I would love to switch gears for a minute um, because this is a podcast about sex stuff as well. And I'm wondering if any of the stuff you're talking about applies to sex education with kids and how we talk to our kids about about sex. I think it does. Um, uh, My husband and I both grew up in uh, homes where we weren't able to talk about sex, sexuality, sexual exploration. Yeah, like most of us. Right. And we didn't want our own children to have that experience. We wanted to be um, their parents, elders in their lives, who know that sex is uh, this amazing, wonderful, transformational experience, essential to the human experience, and that it also can come with problems if it's not consensual, if it's not mutual, if it's not safe, um, if you're not intending to get pregnant and you do, if someone gets a disease. So there are these dangers. Um, and Physical and emotional. Pleasures. Yeah. So I remember... Risks so, and benefits. Oh, yeah. And the trouble is we only talk to kids about the risks. So I remember when our kids were going through the standard sex ed here in Palo Alto. <laughs> you seem really stoked about it. <laughs> and, well, and I think they were in fourth grade or whenever they first offer the, you know, the talk, whatever it is. 
Which it shouldn't be just a talk. It should be an ongoing conversation. Yes, yes. But here's the thing. They tell the kids about the body parts and what they do and so on at an age when they're grossed out. And most of them think, gross, I would never do that. Why are you talking to me about this? Get out of here. They can't handle it. They don't. There's nothing in them yet that has a drive toward wanting to be sexually intimate with somebody. And so it's this disgusting, it looks, they're like, I would, don't worry, I won't do that because it sounds horrible, is, is I think for many kids, the first response to these conversations. So I sat down with my kids and I said, let me tell you what they're not telling you yeah. in school. Here's the truth. The sex drive is the second strongest drive in the human being. Second to self-preservation. Like we don't want to die. And number two, we want to have sex. <laughs> and that's and it's a pleasurable feeling. There will come a time, not yet, but there will come a time when you will feel this and you will want this. And so that's what we ought to be teaching you is that, okay, so here's the, it's this incredible thing. And there are some aspects of it that can be problematic or troublesome or can get you into some difficulty or, or you know, hurt. And so we, we ought to be acknowledging both. And I can see why a school district can't stand up and talk to kids about the pleasures of sex. But I think as a family, to be able to talk about those things is essential. And so we very much consider ourselves a sex-positive family. Um, and we talk to our kids that way. And not, you know, all the time, but, you know, as appropriate. But they know they could come to you oh, if absolutely. they needed to. And as I started to have this conversation with the two of them, so I don't know, maybe they were in sixth and fourth grade when I just said to the room, the two of them were in the room, and I, I had somehow sex ed came up. And this is when I said, you know, what they don't teach you is this. Both of them were fascinated. Maybe they were in seventh and fifth or whatever. I don't know, 13 and 11, something like that. And they were listening, and I could tell they were listening to me. And they asked a few questions, and I gave them some answers, and then I left the room. You know, again, say what you need to say and leave. And and that set us up, I think, for then a set of very healthy conversations with them as teenagers about what we expected, what was going to be kind of the rule or the expectations in our family. And um, it sort of boils down to these three things. You you when you're with your significant other in our house you have to have the door open uh cracked until you're able to tell us that you want to have privacy by being able to be behind closed doors and that means you're going to tell us about what birth control you're planning to use and um that the relationship is one that is mutual consensual and safe um, that's awesome because okay. usually it just ends at like, keep the door open, period. Right. So when you're able to have that conversation, you're mature enough to have that conversation with one of us. We know that we're in a place to then respect the fact that you're in an intimate relationship that deserves privacy. Mm -hmm. And then once you get to that point, we expect you to be discreet and respectful in your behaviors, which is to say, take a stock of who's in the house. You know, Don't come home from high school and run upstairs and bang your significant other when everyone else is downstairs in the kitchen and can hear you, you know, we all ought to be respectful about our behaviors and not, um, and, and choose to be, um, sexually active in places and spaces where that's appropriate in the time and space. And, um, so it's about respect for your relationship. It's about respect for the other people in the, in the house or wherever you are. Respect for yourself. Respect for yourself. So it's I think this sea change, I mean, my, our parents never remotely, behave this way toward us, me and my husband, which drove us to cars, uh, alleys, backyards. You know, we were in unsafe places yeah. exploring our um, sexual relationships. And we didn't want to drive our kids to those places. We wanted them to feel that their home is a place where they can um, uh, be intimate with somebody when these certain thresholds have been reached. Mm -hmm. That sounds like an amazing approach, and I'm always curious how um, folks are able to like make that decision to educate their kids in that way when they grew up in such a different environment. You know, I think both my husband and I, we've been together for 30 years and married for 25, 26, and together since we were 19 and 20, so for a long, long time. And we are both on the same page about this, which helps. Um, we were engaged in 1990 and there was a big family gathering of my family like a Christmas thing my parents rented a house with a bunch of bedrooms and they wouldn't let me and Dan stay together 
even though we were engaged. And my mother's rationale was, you know, with the grandchildren, my older siblings, I have older siblings who are quite older, a generation ahead of me. And so they're, they had children who were closer to me in age, but, you know, probably tweens and teens at the time. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, you know, for the sake of the grandchildren, we can't have you staying together. Well, what she didn't appreciate was my own siblings had had those children, quote unquote, out of wedlock. Mm. Okay. I mean, that's an old fashioned term, but that's a term my, my parents might've used back in the day. So she was implicitly judging the relationship that had created the grandchildren she was trying now to protect by me and my fiance not being able to sleep in the same room. And you know what? She didn't want you to model sinful behavior. Right. But again, with with the evidence of that sinful behavior she was worried about already existing in our family, it was heaping judgment upon those relationships and those decisions still. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking for me because Dan was not well. He had gotten a bad cold, and so he was just uncomfortable and sneezing and coughing, you know. And I wasn't able to, like, go sleep with him, mm-hmm. you know, to fall asleep in the same room as him and comfort him. And wake up next to him. Yeah, not even having sex. Maybe just Just, taking care of each other. So it was such. So we were super clear. I think this is not. We all try not to replicate our parents' mistakes. Sometimes we swing too far in the other direction. Yeah, and then we look in the mirror and we're like, "I am my parents." I'm the complete opposite. And look, that wasn't so great either. So, Mm, like uh, overcorrecting. Required. Yeah, Dan and I had a number of conversations about how we were going to approach this as our kids, you know, moved into to their early teens and wanting to be super clear that we were not having different um, rules based on gender, Mm -hmm. wanting to be clear that we weren't presuming our kids were heterosexual. I mean, we went into this with just a different set of more, a different set of values and different language and different approach than our parents had. And we were united and we were relieved. Nicoletta, we were so relieved once we came up with this plan and started to implement it, we had such confidence that our kids were talking to us about the important things and that we knew what was, we knew enough about what was going on. We didn't know everything, but that our kids felt safe and respected in their home. They weren't taking advantage of us. We didn't become like the whorehouse, you know? I mean, I think some people listening, well, not listening to your podcast, but people listening to other podcasts would be like, what? You know, how could you allow that? How could you condone that? You know, I think sexual intimacy is an essential aspect of our wellness as humans. My job is to help my kids start to approach, discover, and unpack that in ways that are safe and healthy and um, to um, to fundamentally be a mom they can come to rather than a mom they're trying to run away from when it comes to these issues. Totally. Are there any specific like intersections of race that you include in talks about sex and relationships? Um, I ask. I, I had a. We have a family friend, and um, their son um, was adopted, and he's a tall black man. And your friend is. Sorry. Your friend is white. Yeah. Um, and the son got in trouble at school for apparently being inappropriate with female students, mm-hmm. but they were like texting him inappropriate stuff. Sure. And he was just being like, like any of the other kids yeah. probably. Um, but because it seemed, I mean, I don't want to put labels on, I wasn't there, but it seemed that it was because he was black. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, so I wonder. describing something yeah. that is probably the oldest narrative in America. And it's still here. Black men are here to victimize or rape or. And that black women are, are slutty. Right, and that white women are victims. The white female victim narrative goes all the way back. So white men were raping black women constantly. Yeah. Slaves. But the fear was that black men were after white women. The The reverse was so vastly more true, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that narrative lives up to this present day. The fear among white folks and white women, that black men are there to harm them. And then the minute there's any hint of wrongdoing, it is, you know, we black men are stereotyped like that and then accused and then shot or incarcerated or what have you. It's just right. a nightmare. And as you asked me right, this... I can see your reaction yeah, to I, it. It's just like I seem so sick of it. 
I'm sick of it, but I'm also terrified of it. You know, I I want my son to be able to make his way in the world, yeah. unfettered by anybody's bullshit, yeah. you know, or prejudice. Um, and how to explain and, that to your kids that this me. is still happening? Well, and it occurs to me, so he has had, you know, a number of girlfriends, and um, um, I never talked with him explicitly about this stereotype and, you know, how you always have to just be super careful not to um, give anyone any cause to accuse you of saying, the you know, being sexually aggressive toward, toward somebody. I mean, I, I had that conversation with my son, my husband did as well, about maleness and femaleness, but not about black maleness and non-black femaleness. Mm-hmm. And I think, so it feels like an oversight uh, on my part, on our part. On the other hand, my son is such a compassionate, emotionally intelligent man that we could see that he was really quite adept at interacting with humans in in whether in a classroom or a bedroom, presumably, in ways that are very respectful. And it was just hard to imagine that he would get into that kind of circumstance and trouble. But of course, it could happen to anyone. Yeah, like as we had talked anyone. about earlier, like someone. Right. Who's black could just be walking down the street and yeah. and other people are like, this person's suspicious. Right, right. Well, and there's a young man I know, um, African-American, grew up in this town, um, trying to protect his identity by not saying more. But a has, person in the world. <laughs> has said to me that this happened to him, that he dated a white girl who, and then was accused of having assaulted her. And... Um, he knows in his heart, his spirit, his soul, that that isn't what happened. Um, that it was more when people in her life didn't like the fact that she was with a black person. Yeah, I mean, I think the she interesting used that against him. The interesting thing in the classes and studies that I've done um, is the dynamic that you're talking about of the white men raping black women. Is then it was blamed on the black women for being like the seductresses, right? Which is the just, enslaved seductresses. Yes, right. Give me a break. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a tough topic, but I, I have some hope because there are people like you out there writing these memoirs and getting this word out and, and speaking around the world. Um, and I want people to be able to connect with the work that you're doing. Um, how can folks find you and can we just rename your books yeah, so they absolutely. can go buy them yeah, and yeah, support yeah. you? Love it, love it. And hire you. Yeah, yeah excellent. Love that. Um, so the books are How to Raise an Adult, the parenting book, and Real American is the memoir on race. My website is julielithcotthames.com. That's my full name without the hyphen.com. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. You can find all of those links at my website. So that's the easiest place to go. The books are available in audio, ebook, paperback, hardback. And um, and I love talking with people about issues that we're mutually concerned about. So thank you so much for being willing to have this honest and open conversation with me. And I am so grateful and I'm glad to still know you after now it's my five year reunion. It's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe you've only been gone five years. You know why? Because you've done so much in the oh, time you've you. been out. I found myself thinking it must be her 10th reunion because thank you've you. done so much. Look at you. So you too. Well, thank you. But I'm 50, <laughs> right? You're not even 30. Yeah, but you are now a best selling author. And I hope that I'll always be growing and learning and figuring out more and more about the world and about myself. I hope that I'm growing and learning until I take my last breath. So it's been great to be with you. Congratulations to you on what you're doing. And thanks thank for Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. Um, and if you want to follow what we're doing, again, we're on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and you can always email us with your questions or if you need any help with things at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thank you.